Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we have a special guest with us, Nathan Patterson. Would you like to say hello to the audience? I'd like to say you said my name right this time. It's pretty pretty awesome. Uh, I, broken clock is like, right like uh, twice a day, maybe once <laughs> if it's like in a digital clock with the time indicator. Yeah. But like a military clock is only once right a day. But sometimes, once in a while... <laughs> I'll get something right. Awesome. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> right. And so today we are going to be talking about what it's like to live as an open theist. I'm, I'm going to throw something out there and you could criticize it all you want. But uh, it, implicitly, uh, every single person lives like an open theist. I was just going to throw that out there for discussion's sake. That, that's, that's totally true. Just the way people see things and the way they pray and just interact with the world. They act as if God is in time and is uh, responsive to them and uh, genuinely cares about them and is not distant like the platonic ideas are. So totally, I see it every day. So I, I grew up in uh, Calvinist churches and it's funny because you'd go to the Calvinist sermons and it would be like, oh, you need to repent or you need to do this or you need to pray for guidance in this. You need to make this decision. God interacts with us. God answers our prayers. God does this and we respond to God until, until they're talking about the nature and character of God and then their tone changes. So they're open theists in their Monday through Friday, whatever, how they live, act and breathe. And uh, as soon as the, this conversation subject talk, turns to the nature and character of God, suddenly their open theism is out the window, and then they have to qualify everything. I also heard something funny, because I'm friends with your sister, that when you guys were younger, every time you'd go to church, your dad would listen intently at the sermon, and if there was anything wrong whatsoever, you guys would have a nice four- to five-hour Bible study after church. <laughs> so so there's this one one Calvinist pastor— this is like the worst Calvinist pastor that uh, we ever had. Uh, he, he was the youth pastor. And so one one Sunday, like uh, the lead pastor, who was a great guy, great sermons. I loved listening to him. Uh, he had a friend that died, a very godly pastor uh, uh, passed away, a guy who would never leave a Bible on the ground, showed great reverence to God. And this man of God died. So our pastor, also a man of God, decided to go visit this other pastor, allowing for this youth pastor who, uh, he, uh, he's a little bit not there, I guess. Um, but he gets <laughs> up there to give his sermon and it's replete with uh, PowerPoints. And we weren't used to PowerPoints at that time and all the little cheesy icons and clip arts. And the sermon was about absolutely nothing. It wasn't a coherent sermon. And, and there was a phrase, he's like, uh, basically like, I'm glad that uh, God finally stepped in and uh, uh, did this so that I could have an opportunity to speak today. So basically, he's making the claim that God killed off this godly man to give us this awful sermon. And uh, I'm oh. looking at my brother, my dad's there. I'm like, did he just say that God killed this guy so he could <laughs> preach this sermon? Ah! Oh. <laughs> oh. oh, that was a waste. That was a waste. Ah. But yeah, so that's pretty funny. Uh, growing up in Hall, was it? It wasn't J.D. Hall. It was a youth pastor. <laughs> I he is, yeah, he's a nice enough guy. He's a nice. He probably he wasn't thinking through what he was saying, or maybe he really was, and he was a diehard Calvinist. But yeah. uh, once in a while, people do kind of live like Calvinists. Um, there was that Civil War general who thought that God directs all bullets, and uh, he ended up getting shot to death. So <laughs> because he. He wouldn't take cover because God guides all bullets, and so oh. that was that was one guy who uh, lived according to his uh, his theological convictions. And there was uh, my my brother; he went to Hillsdale. And Hillsdale College is a very conservative college. If you have young daughters and you want them to marry awkward, godly young men, um, send them to this college. But he was rooming with a Calvinist roommate, and the Calvinist roommate needed to decide his future. And so he had this idea that he would pick up this apple and he would drop the apple. And depending on how the apple hit the ground and rolled, that's God determining what he's going to do for his life. So like he, he mapped out in his mind, if it rolls this way, he wants me to go into uh, economics or something or this way into ministry. And so he is basing his entire future off of this apple drop that he thought God was directing. And so once in a while, you'll get people living out Calvinism, but I wouldn't say that's the norm. People act and uh, breathe and they pray. Uh, open theism, 
You yeah. just hear it in everything they say. Yeah, until they get into the pulpit and start preaching sermons, and then you and then you start to really get on some of the really obscure theology. Like I remember, I was going to a church when I lived in Central California because I live in Denver, Colorado now, and the lead pastor started preaching on Genesis twenty-two with the whole text of "Now I know," and for about fifteen minutes, this pastor was basically trying to dumb down the text and saying God didn't really know. He's just really affirming Abraham's faith now at this point, and he already knew Abraham was going to do this, and that he know that he, he knew that Abraham wasn't going to have to sacrifice his son and so forth like that. Or like when you read the text, you're like, it doesn't say that. Like Abraham goes up the mountain, like assuming that he's going to be having to sacrifice his son. But I mean, other other theologians say, that, well, you know, even if that was the case where God had him kill his son, he knew God was able to resurrect him, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, the text doesn't say that whatsoever. It just says, Abraham takes his son up the mountain. His son's like, Isaac's like, uh, where's the sacrifice? He's like, oh, God will provide it. It's like, he's going to end up killing his kid. You know what I mean? Until <laughs> the angel of the Lord shows up. And it's just like, oh, we're good now. And I was like, oh, 15 minutes of that. And I, as I'm sitting there, as I'm sitting there, Watch this. I start kind of shaking my head, and the associate pastor notices me shaking his head, and he already knew at that point I was an open theist, and he was just like, <laughs> I was like, okay. All right, guys. All right. So I, I pulled up on the screen uh, John Eldridge, and John Eldridge is, uh, he just came out with a book on prayer, how, how to pray. And, uh, you know, he seems really good. He seems like an open theist in some of his. And some of his, uh, how he talks and acts and writes. And he's been accused of being an open theist as well. So uh, I'm trying to pull up a passage right here. If it takes me too long to get this passage, I'll just cut it out. We'll go straight to the passage. Okay, so living, living like an open theist. Here's John Elridge. He says this, And certainly we see that God wants not merely an adventure, but an adventure to share. He didn't have to make us, but he wanted to. Though he knows the name of every star... And his kingdom spans galaxies. God delights in being part of our lives. Do you know why he often doesn't answer prayer right away? Because he wants to talk to us. And sometimes that's the only way to get us to stay and talk to him. His heart is for relationship, for shared adventure to the core. Yeah, he's an open theist, like I said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he sounds like an open theist. So I, I think at the core... Uh, practically living like an open theist. Now, I, I don't talk practical open theists very often on my channel. It's a lot of information, but practically how we live and how we internalize and how we how we uh, display this to the outside world, I think that at, at the core, John Eldridge got it right. This is how God wants to interact with us. He wants a shared adventure with us in the world. He wants to be with us like King David. He was constantly with King David, interacting with King David. King David would pray on his hands and knees. King David would go through hard times, harsh times. The, all the Psalms written by King David show this this heart heartache, heartbreak, uh, the, these intense moments of highs and lows that he shares with God and he pours out his heart and soul to God for this uh, interactive relationship. God, you're with me. You guide me along the streams of steel water. You you protect me. You, you, you'll lead me through the highs and lows. You are my God. I think this is why God really loved King David. Now, King David wasn't the most perfect person in the world, but he really had a heart for God. And uh, the text describes King David as a man after God's own heart. And I think that's really important that we need we need to pay attention to and pray, pray like King David. And uh, I, I was just listening to that second half of, uh, what's this guy's name, Mike Winger on open theism. And he basically says, you shouldn't interact with God, whereas you want to bring something to God. You you can't call God out or call ask like King David always does. Uh, why are you hiding your face? Uh, your enemies are swarming all around. You need to come right this wrong. These these are prayers to move God, to get God to act, to call God to to inter, intervene in reality. Mike Winger uh, he thinks that's an invalid way to pray. It's a prayer that we find throughout the Bible, many different characters call God to act for the sake of justice. Mm-hmm. And also it's really telling him 
just and we hit it nice on another podcast too. We're talking about God's uh, heavenly host and the divine council and so forth too, of just the relationality of God and how He interacts with the world, and that He has these these messengers that are part of His heavenly host that He sends into towns like the whole Sodom and Gomorrah to kind of scope things out and see how things are going. And Abraham starts petitioning to Him, saying, "Hey, if there's fifty righteous people, spare the city. If there's only 10 righteous people spare the city and just it, it shows the relationality of God where not only is he with David, but he's with all of us too and how he interacted um, in primeval history and how he interacted with patriarchs and stuff like that. Um, especially like Moses, for instance, where, you know, he's telling Moses, Hey, I want you to be my mouthpiece. Okay. I have this message. We're going to bring to Pharaoh and Moses is like, well, bro, uh, I can't talk like that. He's like, all right, I'm sending your brother Aaron, but you're still going to go and you're going to do all these signs and wonders and stuff like that. It's like, God is, consistently in, in the lives and working in and through his people at all times, where if we're dealing with a Calvinistic God that's immutable and impassable and outside of time, like the text of scripture is essentially lying to us about the interactions of God with his people. And it's really funny, those, those, both those instances that you brought up in, in Exodus and also in Genesis 22, in both cases, God has a potential to get frustrated, to get mm -hmm. angry at, uh, at what uh, Abraham says. Don't be angry, God, but what about 15 people? Don't be angry, God. Uh, please, uh, just hear me out. May maybe 10 people. And uh, in the Exodus uh, example, Exodus 3 and 4, God gets angry. And uh, Moses keeps throwing objections. God's like, go do this. And he's like, well, I don't know your name, God. Well, here's the name. Uh, now go do this. He's like, oh, I, don't, I can't speak for it. Or he does. He said, what if they don't believe me, God? I'll give you these signs. Now go, no, go uh, give him the message. And then he's like, oh, I can't talk very well. And God like gets angry. He gets, yeah. it's like, you're throwing, you're throwing everything. I I'll send your brother. I've solved all your problems. Go do it. And, and it's, and you don't you don't get angry when you're expecting all of this. If you've eternally internalized all this information in your mind, you're not going to get frustrated with these people and their real time interactions with you. Their their real time objections. And this is a very open theistic idea where where God is getting frustrated by someone who's just refusing to go along with what he's saying. Numbers mm -hmm. eleven, uh, chapter eleven, verses one through two is really interesting, too, because um, it talks about people complaining, and so it says in verse uh, verse one, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. It's just like, don't make God mad, but it also just shows how relational and how personal he is and also how important his his mission is with this people group he's created israel supernaturally through abraham and sarah who were you know 100 years old and couldn't have kids and all of a sudden they have baby a baby isaac and that's the, the child of the promise that brings about this people that god is intimately working with in and through in order to bring about his purposes for redemption to the world yeah, over and over again, he says in in, in Numbers and uh, I think Deuteronomy as well, how long will the people reject me? And I think we really need to understand this is how we live our lives, that uh, God has a lot of people against um, him, and he wonders how long will they do this? How long is this going to go on? And uh, at some point, God's going to get frustrated. He's going to bring in the, the Jewish eschatological hope of uh, the day of judgment, mm -hmm. judge the world. And... <laughs> And it's probably going to be due to frustration. <laughs> yep. how, how long? Uh, until this boiling point reaches over. Yep. Uh, he said uh, when he's giving Israel the promised land, uh, they're not ready. Their, their time of wrath is not at hand. They have not reached their full evilness. Uh, he was bearing with them until they reached a, a more uh, more crucial tipping point to vomit them out of the land, to kill, kill the inhabitants who are wicked in that land and replace them with his holy people who are supposed to who are supposed to be the good people, but then mm -hmm. they turned out bad as well. Yep. His patience and long suffering is, is definitely evident in the scriptures. But at the same time, when he, he gives you your chances, but then when you screw it up, it's go time. <laughs> right. So I think, I think we could understand this for ministry that uh, God, there are people out there who are currently evil. And our goal for them is to convert them to Christianity and uh, God 
his idea is, you know, once you convert, once you repent, and once you turn to him, those past actions don't matter anymore. You can have the, your slate wiped clean, and he is just waiting for that to happen. He wants that to happen. Even though he might hate the wicked, and he might hate uh, murderers who go out and killing everyone, uh, the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, he might hate those people. But if those people have a true repentance and come to him, he's willing to wipe that slate clean and then treat them like a child of God. And it, it's, it's a longing. It's a, it's a hopeful relationship. It's God wanting to interact with the world. God being open, open to receiving anyone into his kingdom. Yeah, just like it says in uh, was it Titus. Titus 2, uh, verses 11 through 12. For the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly, in this present world, it just goes to show that God wants us to come to Him, and God has a plan for us if we would repent and genuinely seek Him out. And that once we are part of that, we are called to a certain way of living, also. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, so living like an open theist, the future is not set. We're not we're not trying to le- read the tea leaves. We we don't think. Uh, I, I go to this Calvinist church for Awanas, and uh, they taught me what fleecing is. Have you ever heard of this fleecing thing? No, but it sounds horrifying. Okay, so fleecing is you, you know Gideon, and Gideon had uh, had had this this message from God to go kill the I don't know Midianites or whatever. Okay, uh, and and so he had this test for God. He says, "Okay, I'm going to put this fleece on the ground." And if it's wet in the morning and the whole area around it's dry, then I know it's from you. And then the next night he's like, okay, now I want this to be dry and the area around it to be wet. And so he did this little test for God that God's going to fulfill this test to know that the word's from him. And so all these Calvinists knew what this fleecing stuff was because they are all involved with people. And they thought it was kind of crazy, but they're in, they've been involved with people who fleece to try to know God's will, you know. Just like the Calvinist in his apple, how he drops the apple, and whichever way the apple rolls, wow. that's the message from God. And it, that it seems kind of crazy from to me, but uh, uh, you know, Gideon, he he's an open theist, and uh, he had interaction with God, and so maybe maybe in that sense that it's okay, but not the Calvinist apple thing. I, I wouldn't be doing any Calvinist apple dropping. Mm, it kind of reminds me of Deuteronomy six sixteen which Jesus quotes in uh, Matthew 4, where it says, uh, you must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Manasseh. <laughs> kind of like, mess with God, you're going you're gonna to get the knuckles, man. <laughs> it's always funny when the Bible talks like this. It's like, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't, you shouldn't take the, your Lord's name or you shouldn't swear. They're doing it. They're doing yeah, it. And, exactly. And, <laughs> And uh, in the Bible, it works. And people swear on God's name in the Bible. For example, uh, who was it? It was uh, Jacob. Yeah, yeah, I think it might have been Jacob with Laban, right? Because he was yeah. with his wives and stuff like that and running away from Laban and set up the boundary marker. And Yeah, and then they made... God. They vowed before God uh, not to pass this, uh, you know, so they're 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 swearing on God's name. And yep. uh, in the New Testament, it's like, stop doing it, guys. Stop doing it. Just Just uh-huh. cut it out. And so often when the Bible says not to do something, it's because it's widely done and sometimes it's worked in the past. So people saw past justification for doing that. But now there's a prohibition because it's being overused or just made common. Uh, that, that's, that's what being vulgar means. It's uh, holy is set apart, whereas uh, vulgar is common. So people yeah. do it so often that it, it, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Yep, and that that passage was in Genesis thirty-one, too, where uh, they they swore to the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of the father of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. That's interesting too, how they call God the fear of Isaac. Right. It's it's not clear if uh, the God of Nahor is a different God than Yahweh, or if it's the same God as Yahweh, if all these gods are the same Yahweh God, or if they're different gods, it's it's not quite clear from here. But it is an example of them swearing on Yahweh's name in some capacity. Yep, exactly. Or calling upon the names of other divine beings and so forth, too, and trying to give them power and authority, or even some type of position of power within the hierarchy of, of the divine council when we all know they're not. 
So back to living like an open theist. So uh, let's say my son gets cancer. It's okay to like King David. Uh, King David would bargain with God. He said he'd say, "God, I'm in this this uh, terrible situation. I'm about to die, um, and I'm going to be dead. And are you going to get any praises from me if I'm dead? Uh, if you save me, God, I will sing your praises. I'll 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 proselytize for you. I'll I'll shout your name in the temples." He bargains with God. He he has cards to play. He he understands that God wants interaction. God God desires praises. God desires uh, relationships. And mm-hmm. he's saying that uh, you're going to forego what you want, God, if this happens to me. It's as bargaining with God. He's mm-hmm. he's playing his chips to get God to act. It's mm-hmm. it, he thinks he can motivate God. So we can, we can motivate God. God does want something from us. God did create us for a reason. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the Toby Mac got song, you know, Toby Mac song. Uh, we, we're made to love. We're made yeah. to love. He wants this relationship. It's the John Elridge idea that uh, God wants this adventure with us, creating a future together. Yep. I mean, I, I think of the, the story also um, where Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is basically just got told you're going to die. And he has this whole thing where just where he pours out his heart to God and God tells him, you know what? I'm going to extend your years. You're good. And Jeremiah 26, 19 um, brings that subject up where he says "Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves in the sense of just like, you know, God wants the relationship, but he also wants the hearts too. And it, and it even talks about, I forget which prophet is, where God says he didn't even command sacrifices. All he wanted was an obedient and contrite heart. And it's just like, what? What about Leviticus? Did God not read Leviticus? I mean, wasn't he there? But it just goes to show his relationality in the sense where he wants to partner with us. He wants to be part of our story, I guess is what you could say. Um, when and, and interacting, he wants the give and take. He wants the relationship, and I think the Eldridge quote is actually pretty pretty on point. Where it's just like we're praying, and God may not want it to happen right away because He wants us to slow down and have the conversation with Him in order to work side by side with Him. So back to Abraham, real quick. God says, "I know this man, this this Abraham, and he he's a righteous man. He'll instruct his children in the ways of uh, me and." Uh, I'll bring him into my council. I'll let him give me input as to what I'm going to do. He invites this dialogue because of his respect for a man. And uh, the Calvinist, uh, the Mike Winger video that I already referenced, uh, he says that no one could give God counsel. Uh, He says, see Isaiah, see what Paul says. No one could counsel God. And uh, he doesn't doesn't deal with these counterexamples where absolutely people counsel God. They're not they're not being overriding on God. They're not saying, God, you will do this no matter what, and I'm an authority over you. And I think that's what the Isaiah and mm-hmm. Paul passage is actually about. No one can manipulate and control God. But that doesn't mean God doesn't accept advice from his confidants. First Kings 22, you have that divine counsel scene where God is crowdsourcing information, but other have people with heavenly hosts. He's like, all right, man, we got to kill this guy. You got to kill Ahaz, man. He's really taking me off. Who's going to take him out? And this guy in the spirit pool says, I'll be a lying spirit in his prophet's mouth. And then God's like, you're the man for the job. Do you it. You can do it. You can get it done. <laughs> you get it done. Get it done. It's like, great idea. Go do it. Uh, or even Job. Job, when, when the, the, the Satan figure shows up and, and God's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, going to and fro, checking out the land and stuff like that. And, and they basically make a wager at that point where Satan's like, oh, skin for skin. You know what I mean? Take away all of his possessions and all stuff and he'll be fun. And God's like, all right, go for it. Do your best. And it's just like, what do you mean? Does it get counsel or doesn't take advice or, or interacts with people? Like you see it all the time in scripture. Right. Uh, I'm going to have to have Dov Weiss back on to talk about his book, Pious Irreverence. And that's all about, uh, in both the Bible and in uh, Talmudic literature, people bringing God to account and talking to God and getting God to do stuff. And, and in some accounts, uh, people teach God righteousness. And there's, there's an account in the Old Testament, but it's re- retold in Talmudic literature in how uh, there's, there's uh, Israel's making uh, uh, covenants with foreign peoples. And uh, they give them a chance to surrender first, but this wasn't God's idea at first. 
So yeah, this is idea that Moses or Israel brought to God's attention. And then God's like, you have taught me righteousness. Wow. In Talmudic literature, and not, not biblical liter literature, Talmudic literature takes a lot of liberties to flush out various uh, deeper concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, I, that's that to me. I'll, I want to read that. That sounds good. Yeah, very good. Dov Weiss, great, great guy. I had him on the show. We talked to Jewish, Jewish history and uh, theology. So he is good to have on. But uh, open theist living. So how does open theism play out in your own walk with God? Oh, let's see. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I see a lot of suffering going on in Denver and people that are homeless and whatnot. And even just seeing things online or, or hearing people talk about, you know, the suffering of God or suffering because of the hands of God or something like that. And my first in instinct is like, why are you blaming God for that? It's just like, you know, we we live in a world with free agents. We live in there where we're, 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 we're battling principalities and powers as, as, as uh, Paul talks about. Um, and, and there's so much going on behind the scenes where, where there's things that just happen. And it doesn't mean that God is sitting there as a puppet master, pulling strings and making things happen. And so, it's almost like being an open theist. You have to help talk people off the ledge before they go really crazy on, on, you know, Oh, you know, this is God's will, you know, um, thy will be done, you know, on earth as in heaven, meaning, you know, for they, I gave this, this kid leukemia or something like that, or I let this big old chunk of concrete fall from this overpass onto this car, crushing an entire family. And it's just like, that's the most absurd thing ever. And so knowing that God is relational in that way and seeing where I fall short in areas, I have to bring myself to a place of prayer where I'm like, all right, God, how do I partner with you in this? How do we get this done together? Because obviously me sitting back and wanting expecting you to do something isn't happening and if i'm praying for this thing obviously you want to you have want a relationship with me and that you're obviously if it's on my heart you're probably calling me to partner with you in this in order to bring about the purposes that you have for this situation so i see it as, a, as, as a partnership and living it out of what can of working with god you know conspiring with god to bring about his will um through my living, my way of encouraging, building people up, loving them, taking care of my kids, taking care of my wife, just day-to-day -day interactions. Yeah, I, I see a lot of parallels in that to what we see in the Psalms during uh, the times of uh, times of despair, where people see the world and the world's not going as it should go. The, the wicked are prospering and the righteous are being oppressed. And they cry out to God and they, they say, this is a reversal of a just operation of the world. God, where are you? Why do you hide your eyes? Please act, Lord. Fix, fix this. Come in and right the wrongs. And they are very open theistic. They didn't they didn't ascribe, oh, everything is uh, happening according to God's intricate plan. And, you know, when, when you have a kid with a leukemia like I do, you know, people come into the hospital and say, oh, God has a plan for all of this. I was talking with a friend just recently who also had some uh, problems with his kid. He's like, said, people say that to me all the time. This is God's plan. <laughs> like, no, it's not. No, it's not. This is this is a subversion of what God's perfect world would actually look like. And, you know, you see that attitude in the Bible. These people had our same sufferings. These people lived our lived experiences, and they did not fall back on Calvinistic micromanaged sovereignty or God controls everything. They didn't do that. They prayed out to God. They asked for God to act. They called God to account even. They said, you're negligent in your duties to us, God. You need, you need to do something, God. Right this wrong. Yep, exactly. It's funny because I remember listening to our, our favorite Calvinist, James White, and uh, how he used to spend time as a chaplain and that his Calvinism brings him comfort because he can sit there with someone who has a child that's dying and say, oh, God, this is part of God's plan. You know what I mean? This is part of God's decree that this would glorify him and bring him glory. So just think of this issue, this, this situation where your child is dying right now as glorifying God in some way, shape or form. I'd be like, man, if I was in a hospital and some chaplain told me that he'd be missing some teeth. 
I wouldn't advocate any. I would just I wouldn't advocate punching someone over theology per se, but uh, I could understand the mindset. I could understand the mindset. But, I'd mentally uh, punch him. Okay, there we go. Better mentally punch him. Or you can mock him. <laughs> Mocking's pretty good. Yeah, it's, uh, a good way that's, to do things. Forte, by the way. <laughs> Oh, I, I love mocking people. Uh, I don't know. I think I, I grew up with it. So like I met this guy from my childhood who had, he is like a lot older than me. And he's like, I remember you used, you used to mock my son in church when you were like 10. I'm like, oh, I sorry. I, I, I just don't think I do about it now. He's like, he came to church one day with a Star Trek thing and you were just making fun of him the whole time. I'm like, oops, I, I'm sorry. Uh, so I got a lot of experience mocking people, I guess yeah. is my little point here. Uh, one thing I was going to bring up too with the whole living out, op- uh, living as an open theist is, to be honest though, when it comes to just your walk of faith also, um, we're not much different than other Christians though. It's just when we see suffering in the world or when we pray or see things play out, we think about it differently based upon our understanding of God. But I mean, we still go to church. We still raise our hands in worship to the Almighty during worship songs and stuff like that, music. And really get into the word and get fed, just like everybody else. It's just we don't we don't look at things as if there's this huge divine blueprint that is basically all these pieces are falling into place. It's it's the future is open. There's change. Like right now, my wife is in California right now until until Monday because she has a cousin that is uh, basically given a couple months left to live because of melanoma cancer. They found her legs and and, and, and radiation treatment and stuff like that. And, and she keeps bringing up, man, she's too young. She hasn't lived life and stuff like that. And, and kind of like in a sense, it was questioning God in this regards. And it's just like, that's not, God's not God's fault. Like God didn't do that. Yes. It's like, God, where are you? God, what's going on situation? We're praying, we're interceding, we're, we're fasting and so forth. What is going on with this issue? But the last thing that ever would come to my mind is that God is sitting there dangling my wife's cousin, you know, in the air being like, I'm going to let you die because this is part of my, my providence and my, and my, and my whole view of things. It's not that way for all, for all I know is my, my, our continued prayers, intercessions for her can change the disposition of God's heart in order to bring about the healing of her cousin. Or it could be a situation like Daniel was a Daniel seven where Daniel's praying and praying and praying. And it's like, God, where are you? Then all of a sudden Gabriel shows up and says, Hey man, I'm really sorry. It took so long. We were battling the Prince of Persia. Michael had to show up and like take care of business and stuff like that. It's just like, you know, there's so many variables in in this because the supernatural realm as well that we take in because, because for all I know, God is doing everything He can to bring about the healing of my wife's cousin. But there are other free agents, principalities, and power stuff that are that are thwarting that and really trying to do some damage to my wife's family by, you know, by this situation happening. And it's just like. This isn't God's will. This isn't some divine blueprint. This isn't God's decree in providence. You know what I mean? This is an open and free world with, with conscious creatures and beings that are interacting on a daily basis with each other in a give and take and also a battle. You know what I mean? The scriptures talk about how like there's a, this battle going on in the heavens at the same time as there's conflict going on in the world and stuff like that. So there's, there's very much a lot going on behind the scenes, but not, but for one second, I'm not thinking that this is part of God's decree or his divine plan in order to bring about the suffering of a 23 year old girl that hasn't had a chance to really enjoy life. Right. I, th- I think that's real critical. I think that example of uh, the angels fighting, it's like, I can't get to you right away because there's so much things going on. Uh, we're fighting uh, this divine warfare that you're unaware of. That's uh, very critical for under- our understanding of how the world works. A lot of times people view like God controls everything and uh, Satan is an impersonal force that's responsible for all evil or something like that. No, and Satan's not like What's Satan's goal? Is his goal to just like kill people and cause misery and make everyone uh, torture people? No, his goal is to, he's a, he's a rational creature. He wants to overthrow God and set himself up as God. He wants worshipers. So it's not like he's trying to interact and, and make all the bad things happen that ever happen. Uh, if a baby dies, he's happy that this baby died. No, he'd probably rather have that baby live and worship him as God rather than the true God. Yeah. And turn people away from the living God. 
Yeah, so uh, people, uh, they tend to conceptualize God versus Satan as like a yin-yang thing, a dualistic world. Like the Tao. Yeah, like like all this forces of evil, this metaphysical evil is uh, hitting up against this metaphysical good, and Satan characterizes all metaphysical evil, and God is all metaphysical good, rather than Satan being one actor in a huge host of other actors in a coordinated effort to a coordinated goal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Um, it's it's just I think it has to do with also like our understanding of of you know as Bob Inger calls them the omnis and the ms and stuff like that. And I mean I know Bob Inger personally, and, and as well as Will Duffy who are also open theists, and, and and just the the whole concept that we I think you've talked about this too about you know on your blog uh, reality is not optional, like about the omnipresence of God as like God's not in the toilet. You know what I mean? The sense of that. And you see continually in scripture, like, let's see, the Genesis 11, where God says, where the people are building this tower of Babel, and God says, let us go down and see what's going on. It it, it adds temporality to God and, and even space of like God being places. And it's almost like the Bible is saying that God can't be everywhere at once, but in the sense of om- uh, omnipresence that, that, you know, Calvinists would understand it. But instead, God has a heavenly host. And I, I, I hit, hit us a lot, but I think it's really a crucial aspect of theology that are his eyes and his ears on the ground that are about in the world that are basically reporting information back to him and are interacting in the world that are like basic, you know what I mean? Like they're battling, the, 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 these heavenly hosts are battling for us in order to protect us against the principalities and forces of evil. And that God is using them as messengers to relay information to us. I mean, like, why would God send Gabriel to talk to Mary and say, hey, you know, you're you're, you're basically the new Ark of the Covenant. You, you know, you're going to withhold God, you know, within, within you. You're going to give birth to God to the, you know, the, the virgin birth. It's like God could go down there and tell him himself, and he could do it with the angel of the Lord also. But instead, he sends messengers. Like you see, God continually in Scripture working with his heavenly family to interact with the people on earth that are part of his earthly family, which he is striving to basically convert, I guess you could say, that they would believe and trust in him as the one true God, believe in his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in order that we might be a part of that instead of being against it in opposition. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, what, when you talk like that, I think about uh, Thomas Ord. Now, I might have some disagreements with Thomas Ord. He's a very nice guy, good guy. Uh, he has uh, a book out about uh, essential kenosis or uh, God cannot act unilaterally. And a lot of what we see in the Bible is God working through agents. And so in that respect, in that respect, he is more biblical than the Calvinist. Mm-hmm. Uncontrolling and, love of God is the book, by the way. Uncontrolling love of God. He's, he has a new one that came out that uh, I reviewed. I gave him some feedback and I'll try to get him on the program to talk about his new book. His new book coming out is God can't and oh, so yeah that's gonna be an awesome book so, so controversial I was looking at the title just like oh people are gonna flip their lids <laughs> yeah so I've, I've read it i gave feedback to an initial draft copy copy and i'll i'll try to get him on to talk about it but uh he's a good guy uh in that in that sense though where god acts through agents that's actually a very biblical concept and you see mm-hmm. that all the time that god uses an agent to get his will done. God sends agents to go do stuff. And uh, Calvinists think that God micromanages everything. Everything is just controlled meticulously. The grains of dust falling from the sky in your room, when you when the, the light's coming through your window, you see mm-hmm. all that dust. They're like, God is controlling each and every one of those paths. R.C. Sprawl, there is no rogue atoms in the universe. If there was a rogue atom, God could not be sovereign. <laughs> like, bro. I think it I think it was originated with uh, Spurgeon about a dust moat. Yeah. And then it, then it was adapted to an atom because an atom is smaller than a dust moat. And I don't know. But uh, that's their idea. So what's up with all the agents that God uses all the time to get his will done? Why doesn't he just do them without the agent? What's the purpose of the agent? What's the purpose of these interactions? They're yeah, all facades. Yep. He's completely relational, like, like we've talked about. I mean... Uh, a really good book that's actually just came out that talks about the agents too is actually 
by Mike Heisner, who's one of my favorite theologians. And it's actually a book called Angels, which is really interesting because it takes this subject matter from, um, which I swear he might as well be an open theist, even though he rejects it. You know, I mean, you know what I mean, he just he just sounds like an open theist with the way he talks. But um, with it, the, the whole premise of he takes a Psalm eighty two with the whole divine counsel scene and takes it to a, another level of just like the heavenly family and God interacting with the world and stuff like that and what their purpose and role is in creation and messengers. You know what I mean? I, one, one thing is funny. It may be a little bit off topic. Is he? It talks about how like the the Bible never describes angels having wings but instead when people see them they're terrified they're like oh no it's an angel he's gonna kill me like get away from him (laughs) that's interesting so open theists i think in that respect where god works with and through people we have a more realistic view of the world than uh i would say a calvinist who thinks that everything that happens is uh divine purposed Whereas uh, our our normal interaction with the world is you try to do things. You try to work with reality to get things done. You try to manipulate an effect. Whereas in uh, Calvinism, fatalism is true. And all things have a purpose and place. And it doesn't matter what we try to do or we think to do. Uh, we, we can't affect anything. The grand scheme of things is set. And we're just a cog in the machine that's turning. But that's not my experience. My experience is a real-time interaction with the beings around me and uh, people sometimes that cross conflicts and and interpersonal relationships that you have to develop and interaction with the world to accomplish goals. That's what I experience. Yeah, same here. It's just, it's all about, once again, like coordination and partnership with the divine in order to bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And in order for his things to be happening in heaven that means his heavenly hosts are there doing the things that they need to be doing to make his will done and so we're called to walk by in faith you know following after jesus in obedience to bring about god's will and purpose here on earth right uh thomas Orr talks about uh, calvinist prayers in one of his books one of the two books uh, maybe i might be confusing them but uh he talks about how they'll they'll say stuff like you know god this child has cancer heal him if it's in your will. <laughs> yeah, you, you've never heard those those guys do that? I, yeah, and it sounds like God has a little notebook and he's just like, hold on one second. Is that one in there? Oh, no, it's not. Sorry, your kid's got to die. Yeah, it's like, uh, they're like, I know whatever happens is in your will, but please heal this. And if you don't, it, it it's giving them an out. It's like, a, it's so that they don't have maybe a crisis of faith if their prayer isn't answered or something like that, where... Where the, it's like we prayed wholeheartedly for this kid to get better, but this kid died. So, mm-hmm. so uh, I preference all my prayers with maybe this will actually happen. They don't believe God is actually going to attempt to save that kid's life. They don't believe that God is actually listening to their prayer with any real consideration. That mm-hmm. God has everything pre-planned, and their prayers are meaningless. Is what they're telling you. It's it's a it's a verbal cue that they don't believe their own prayer has any effect on the world. It's a yeah. disingenuous prayer. Yeah, it was interesting at, at my church we go to last week. Um, it's a non-denominational church in Denver called the Pearl, and uh, one of the associate pastors, at one point during his prayer, said, "God, we give you permission to just fill us with your Spirit and help move us in however you want to move us, Lord, and guide us and direct us. We give you permission, Lord, to work in and through us as your agents. Lord, come into our lives and do this stuff. And I'm like, that guy sounds like he's an open theist. Awesome. And my wife is like, did he just say, God, you have permission? I'm like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> she, she, she grew up you know, in, in, in a church that I found out was reformed, even though her dad is Catholic. And so I don't know how that stuff ended up working out. You know what I mean? Right. Just the concept of God being an open agent or us having to allow, you know, give God permission in the sense of being like, God, use me for your will and your purposes. Go for it. Like have your way is foreign her. Cause she, she has this idea that God's just going to do whatever he wants. So if he wants to take you out. He's going to take you out and stuff like that. And, and there's no cooperation in there. It's almost like we're a chess piece and God's like, I want you here and you go there and we have no say so in it. My favorite prayer in the Bible. I don't know if it's my favorite prayer in the Bible, but one of them, it's up there, is Ezekiel. And God says to him, all right, you're going to tell Israel all about their sins. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to have food and you're going to cook it with uh, using for your tender human poop. Yeah. And Ezekiel's <laughs> like, no, that's not kosher, God. How about not? 
And he says, <laughs> and God instantly is like, oh, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll not do that. Well, we'll use animal poop instead. Yeah, it's, it's like this, this instant back and forth where God just instantly changes his mind. And, and he, he is, he, 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 he gives, he gives uh, what he gives preference to his creation. He gives them the volition to uh, give input and to make decisions and and uh, actualize what they want over what he wanted originally. Mm-hmm. And did you hit on Exodus thirty two already, where, where, where God changed his mind based upon the prayer of Moses? Uh, Exodus thirty two. I think you touched on that briefly. Oh, okay. Because I think I hit on numbers, but. Just, just to go back to it, I mean, Exodus 32, 10 through 14, where God is telling Moses, leave me alone. Like, these people have made me mad. I'm, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to make a whole new people. Okay, okay we didn't talk about this because now I remember. I'm going to make a whole new people through you, Moses. I'm not going to use Israel anymore. We're done with them. Moses is like, dude, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume Israel from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented, or better, repented from the disaster that he had spoken on bringing on his on his people. It's like, come yeah. on, people. It's right there. <laughs> I think I think we could uh, really we could really take this uh, in in our day to day life that God cares about our input. God's just not going to ramrod over us without with everything He wants, irrespective of our own personal thoughts, desires, plans. And that in any relationship, you got a wife, I got a wife. You you don't even if you have the power to always enact your will, you just don't do it unilaterally because that's that's not a relationship. You do consider the feelings of other people. And their wants, their needs, their desires, and you try to strike a compromise. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that uh, Ezekiel was compromising very much by eating food with, uh, you know, <laughs> using animal <Power> poop <laughs> and sleeping on his side for like forty days, and uh, yep. it's a terrible compromise. I think Ezekiel didn't win out on that very well, but it was a compromise, and God does compromise throughout the about- Bible. Isaiah, I think it was Isaiah who like wandered around for like seven or 13 years naked. <laughs> it's like, okay, God, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> these are, these guys have incredible endurance and uh, incredible capacity to follow God. And, and I, I'm awed by their achievements, but <laughs> you know, I ask that God doesn't put me through those. I, yeah. I would prefer, you know, living in a nice house in a nice warm, nice warm blanket, waking up in a nice feather, I don't know, not feather bed because those are like really old, like a nice foam mattress. That's, uh, Lord, if my calling involves foam mattresses, I, I will be very thankful. <laughs> so be it. You will be done on earth as in heaven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're at about uh, 50 some minutes, so uh, we'll probably wrap this podcast up. So practical living for open theists. So give me a brief overview of uh, how it might be different than, you know, a Calvinist or an Arminian. Well, we just just knowing day to day that you're in relationship with God and you're partnering with God through things and that, you know, there's not a divine blueprint going on behind the scenes or God's pulling these strings like a puppet master, but instead there's actual genuine give and take and that we can pray to God knowing that God hears our prayers and that our prayers can indeed change the future. They can change circumstances, whether we pray for something or not. It's genuineness. Our prayers are genuine. Our interactions with God are genuine. Our day-to-day lives are genuine. We don't believe that we are living out a movie that's been pre-planned. It's it's all per our experiences genuine. Mm-hmm. We and believe we, we walk we walk the walk. We talk the talk. Yep, and we're we're not God's not someone as Calvin says that's sitting atop a church steeple watching a parade where he can see it from the end and the beginning, and he just interjects little parts where he feels like it. But instead, he is side by side with the people. He is suffering with them when they're suffering. And he goes in Zechariah or where it says that God sings over us, you know, with, with songs and stuff like that. Like it shows the day to day on the ground going with us through life. 
um, you know, by the, you know, with this whole, with the Holy Spirit, Lord pointing us to Jesus on a day-to-day basis. And like any relationship, it has its highs, it has its lows, it has its points of anger, points of intense happiness, joy, uh, points of uh, intense depression, even points of loneliness or points of frustration even. Uh, these are all real data points. Our real life experience, we can relate to God. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's, that's what the that's why the incarnation is so important too, because it it, it shows God's willingness to stoop to our level, essentially, you know what I mean, in order to experience pain and suffering, you know, even at a human level, even though it says in scripture that God is grieved in his heart in the Old Testament, whatever that looks like on the on the divine level, he experienced it even more so in and through Jesus. And that to me is the ultimate relationship right there, the ultimate relationship creator and person that or being that desires said relationship with his creation. Right. And I'll, I'll end this episode with a story that I had uh, in my interaction with a Calvinist. I said that the disciples went to Jesus and they said, show us God. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And I asked the Calvinist, uh, your conception of God is immutable, unchangeable, timeless, outside space and time. In what way did seeing Jesus tell them and show them God the Father? He said, I don't know. He said, I don't know. And that's that. And that's that. All right. So uh, I think this is a good podcast. We covered a lot of good topics. And we'll have to have you on again and just talk about uh, open theistic prayer. So again... Nathan Patterson, not Patterson, not like Paddington not Bear. Peterson, like you not said last time. Peterson. Well, I, was, I thought maybe you were related to Jordan Peterson. I love but, that guy, by the way. <laughs> that guy is awesome. What about uh, our vampire actor? Uh, what's his name? Uh, ben uh, Harris? <laughs> no, the Twilight guy. Uh, Patterson. Oh, Rob Pattinson. Robert Patterson. He's a good actor. I like him, actually. Listen here, Twilight Sparkle. I don't think so. Listen here, Twilight Sparkle. He was in this movie called The Rover, which is awesome. Okay. I'll have to check it out. It's post-apocalyptic. He plays a retarded kid, so he's got some. (laughs) It's all good. Thanks, bro. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, If anyone has any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to start a thread on the YouTube page or the God is Open Facebook site. Thanks for listening. 